Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Killjoy Radio, where we discuss current issues feminists are talking about. And welcome back. Here are your hosts uh, for today's episode. My name is Jack. Uh, I'm a master's student in women's and gender studies. I'm Sasinan. I'm a PhD nursing student. And I'm Lily. I'm a psychology major and women and gender studies minor. So we're here at SLU today uh, just doing a, a piece about um, basically the bigger picture of um, the Me Too movement and looking at the greater context of that. Uh, and so we'll just each kind of mention what topics we'll be focusing on. Okay. The topic is uh, the, about the intimate partner violence. And mine is sexual assault slash sexual harassment. Nice. And then mine will conclude with um, society's kind of inclination to protect men in all of these situations. So we look forward to uh, having you with us for this episode. So here we go. Okay. I will go first with the preference of the intimate partner violence. Uh, on the average, uh, three women per day are killed by their partner, and also around 20% of them report being physically hurt by an intimate partner. The problem is uh, the victim under reporting of violence because of physiological and social brain reasons such as feeling a charm or fear of being assaulted by their husband. They may be afraid that society or other family member will think that they are bad women and do not have sense of family loyalty. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I um, a lot of times, like in families, I think nobody really wants to believe that that's going on. So even for like the woman in the relationship to talk about it and tell like her family I feel like is a big deal because I don't know nobody really wants to believe that's happening especially with like people who are intimate partners and who have like a long history together yeah and it seems like that theme of believing women is so strong in the Me Too movement and just you know how we've come to uh, give women the opportunity to tell their stories with free of judgment and free of the consequences that would usually come um, in that kind of a setting. Okay. Yeah, Sassi, I'm I'm curious about the the feminist point of view on violence, especially in this context of our discussion. Um, what do you What do you think about that? Okay. About the feminist point of view, I think uh, women state that they think that like, uh, women state that is lower than men's in general as an impact of unequal power relationship, male control, female behavior, and uh, unequal in terms of gender role. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's just huge discrepancies that, you know, happen because of uh, inequality and inequity because of gender that, I mean, obviously play out in terms of violence being perpetrated against women. So, yeah, that's, it just, it seems like that's an effect of the greater society's um, lack of equity when it comes to gender. I think a huge part of it also has to do with the fact that it's been so rooted in our history that, like, women belong in the private sphere and men are in the public sphere, so it automatically, like, reiterates this whole concept of, like, women are in hiding and um, are behind closed doors as opposed to, like, men being the ones who are most valuable and the ones who bring home the most money and all that. Like, their status and power is just kind of, like already out there and on top as opposed to women so then when you bring in this whole um part partner violence kind of stuff then it like reiterates how like oh like women should be in hiding women should be like secret about it as opposed to like men who are like oh yeah like i'm the one who like is the most powerful I would like to talk about the types of violence. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Violence against women can be in the form of four types of violence or abuse, uh, including physical violence, psychological abuse, uh, sexual and economical violence. But in the general way, we can see that uh, physical violence is the most common type of violence. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's definitely what people think of the most yes. when they think of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Yes, but the interesting one is the, the psychological violence. What are some examples of psychological violence? Okay, uh, one thing we can uh, recognize in this type are uh, the woman is feeling an emotional disturbance. Women will feel guilty all the time because men as well as society always blame them on their role as wife. For example, men or society always blame women as a bad wife because they did not do their expect duty as a wife or they did not ask their husband permission for going outside their home or for visiting their family or friends. Wow. Yeah, it's true. Like those kind of just attitudes or ways that a husband or a spouse or a partner would talk down to the other partner. It's amazing what kind of effect that can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, as I think about it more, I mean, even just the way that we talk, uh, I mean, just jokes or ways that we talk about men and women can only just perpetuate these cycles you're talking about, Sassy, of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, men feeling some kind of entitlement or over women or, or things like that. Uh, for the the sec, for the sexual violence, it's kind of like a, men never ask for their agreement, for women agreement to have sex contact. The extreme sanction for refusal of sexual relationship is separate or divorce. This means that they have been abused by her husband for a long time. Mm-hmm. For for the economic violence, uh, sometimes for this for this for this type of violence, sometimes men are not ca- able to uh, support their family in terms of economy because of so many reasons such as losing of a job, uh, not enough education to find job. Moreover, sometimes men like to be to manipulate situation that in order to control women by not giving women what they need or not letting them handle household money. Men, men's reason to do this is to take women depend on him in order to control them. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, when I think of economic uh, manipulation or violence, it seems like you're taking the resources of another person. But this sounds like it's more like making the other person to depend solely on you economically. And one more thing I would like to talk about, the consequence of uh, intimate partner violence. Uh, Intimate partner violence has impact on women's health, including physical, reproductive, psychological, and behavioral consequence. For example, violence can lead to injury, ranking from cut, bruise, and fracture to to chronic disability and death. A higher percent of these injuries require medical treatment. However, injury is not the most common physical problem that brings abused women to seek hospital treatment. More common are psychosomatic disorder. What's a psychosomatic disorder? Uh, That's uh, the frequently have no identifiable medical cause such as headache, mm. abdominal pain, muscle ache, and sleeping and eating disorder. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more, the one, another consequence is la, mental health. Mm. Violence can lead to mental health outcomes such as feeling, charm, guilt, fear, anger, self-worthlessness, happilessness, and Suicide, suicidal idea. I feel like a lot of it, like, could be also, like, PTSD and depression and anxiety. Because I feel like once, like, somebody goes through all this kind of stuff, they probably get worried and upset that it'll happen again. And then also, like you said, how it takes a toll on someone's self-worth. I think that's, like, like, grounds for depression as well. Like, where people feel like, okay... Well, I have nothing to look forward to. I'm a nobody. Life would be better without myself because they're used to just being so, like, diminished and feeling so small. Mm-hmm. It's like you you take on the messages that you're getting from your partner who's, you know, treating you badly. That way you believe that you deserve to be treat, treated badly or something. It seems like there is something here about needing to reaffirm 
you know, people in these situations to tell people um, that they are, they don't deserve that kind of treatment. Yes. It seems like that's just really important. What other kind of uh, ways would you address these mental health outcomes, do you think? Right, they have to go to see the counselor mm. to assess about the severity of their uh, psycho, psychomatic problem. Uh, okay. Yeah. Maybe you can uh, get through the instrument, like uh, the questionnaire or something like that, to mm. measure the health status, mental health status. Nice. Are there a lot of professionals that mm-hmm. deal with having to counsel and treat um, slash talk to women who have gone through this kind of violence, or is that kind of underdeveloped? Just uh, more, uh, uh, they will have like a, the many way to help them to get through the, this situation, especially from peer and family member. They are the key person to help uh, violence women to get through, to get past this situation. Mm. Yeah, it seems like in terms of the ment- or the physical health as well, um, just getting good medical care or um, seeking shelter mm-hmm. seems to be a really important way to overcome those um, boundaries that they're facing. How easy is it for women to get in one of those kind of battered shelters? Uh, I think like a crisis center for women can be one of the alternative for women to find a solution to their problem, such as uh, the lack of knowledge, exercise their power relationship, and sharing experience and information with other women. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. I I had an experience of having an internship at a domestic violence shelter in the Twin Cities, and we had a hotline that um, people who were experiencing intimate partner violence could call in if they're seeking shelter, and we were always full. There was there just were never enough beds. Um, there, luckily, there was a way for us to connect with other shelters, but I mean, just from my experience. There's not enough resources. We just, we always need more. I think it'd be worth talking about how we should be able to fund or find a way to fund more shelters and homes. Kind of like how Jack said that his was always full and there's never enough beds and all that. Well, I feel like if this is such a prevalent problem and it's really hard to stop and kind of like nip it at the source, I feel like it should be at least more beneficial and worthy for us to look into some sort of resources to pool to be able to like provide women with a safe space it's just it's just a problem that seems so um invisible like you just you can't see this problem even though as you're saying sassy it's so prevalent and so many people experience it it's hard to even notice it Mm -hmm. you know if it's taking place in the home Yeah, I think the biggest problem is the whole power dynamic difference because of the fact that men are so powerful and usually I'm assuming if they're the one who's saying like, oh, you need to depend on me financially, all this kind of stuff, they probably have a job where they wouldn't be able to like risk that job. So therefore, maybe like by like a bunch of different means, like women don't come forward. Therefore, it's very hard for that to surface like jack said um is there any specific way you can think of to like be able to like stop the behavior from happening or prevent the behavior from happening to begin with even at a young age or anything i think uh the 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 one more thing in this situation uh, although we have like a policy for women right in the household and institution level but the policy only are not enough to improve women's power and gender inequality. We need to direct the way for changing women's belief and perception by empowering them. When we look at the gender inequality in education and women's economic resort, it seems to us that women's social and economic status and social work need to improve in order to have balanced power bargaining position of household. Wow, yeah, that's a that's a big task. I mean, changing a culture and just thinking about the ways that we can overcome those inequalities and 
just even in the way that men and women exist in society. Yeah, I'd like to see, I, I understand, like, the societal aspect of it, but I'd also like to see some, like, efforts to make, like, men understand their behavior is not acceptable from the get-go. Um, I don't know how you would enforce that, though, how to make people aware, like, what is acceptable and what is not, because society is so far ingrained, the power dynamic of men being on top and then women being, like, kind of, like, at the bottom and lowest of the low of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, education just, again, plays a huge role. I mean, teaching people about these problems, I mean, I don't think I learned you know, in a formal setting about domestic violence until much later in life than I should have, you know. Right. Yeah, I had I witnessed it before I even learned about it, so I can definitely relate to that. So the topic we're going to be talking about today is sexual assault and sexual harassment. So I want to open this with a question to you all. What do you guys believe sexual assault is? I think sexual harassment or sexual assault take place as consequence of sexism and gender inequality. In my opinion, the patriarchal system in the society are viewed as barrier for women being equal with men. Therefore, sexual harassment occurs because of the perspective that women are inferior to men. Sexual harassment is a presentation of continuing gender satisfaction based on gender role expectation. The inferior position of women in society and the workplace is one of the significant reasons of sexual harassment and gender stereotype. Therefore, sexual harassment is related to existing gender issue, patriarchy, and supremacy of men over women. And yeah, that's that just speaks to like the depth of this issue in society. I mean, I guess the way I think about sexual assault just has to do with a violation of um, consent. Yeah, just an act that they don't consent to, then that's sexual assault to me. And then now, what is consent to you all? Ooh. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's got to be someone 18 or over is one thing. And it's got to be verbal. It's got to be non-intoxicated. It's got to be a lot of different things to make sure that that's, uh, that's clear. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go to the University of Michigan's um, Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center, it has a tab called What is Consent? And basically it's talking about a clear verbal yes and that like there are tons of different like little things underneath it saying like, oh, consent should not be assumed. Body language, appearance, or nonverbal communication is definitely, like, one of them. Uh, One should never assume, by the way, a person dresses, smiles, looks, or acts that they want to have sex with you. Previous activity, silence, passivity, lack of resistance, immobility. All of these different types of, like, little things seem pretty minute to, I guess, the general public based off of, like, what I've been seeing with with the whole Aziz Ansari case. But basically, yeah, if it's not, like, a clear verbal yes and it's not, like, it's it the person has to be sober as well, then, no, it's not acceptable. Yeah, it's, to me it seems like that's, I mean, being taught on college campuses to a great extent these days. I mean, I, I feel like college students are pretty well-versed in in consent and in understanding what that means. Yeah, at my time here at SLU, I've heard at least multiple seminars talk, give that exact same but more, like, definitive definition, telling uh, telling everybody, like, you know, it, like, has to be a verbal yes. Like, there's all these conditions. Like, if it's not clear, if it's not sober, like, it's not a yes. How- so I'm just looking, I'm just thinking about your presentation, Lily. I'm guessing that we as a society don't live up to even our knowledge of what these things are. Am I right? Correct. There's, for some odd reason, there seems to be some sort of disconnect because there's so much sexual assault happening still, and it's just ridiculous. I was going to say, I can't help but think of, like, the tweet that I saw during the Aziz Ansari scandal, which comes from an author named Arnessa, when she says, I saw someone tweet something like, if what Aziz Ansari did was sexual assault, then everyone I know has been sexually assaulted. And, that, and like, yeah, actually. 
This tweet that she tweeted received a one. 139,318 likes on Twitter. What? Yeah, it appears that the general public apparently doesn't seem to understand that sexual assault and sexual harassment consider unwanted sexual contact in general as illegal. Um, Even with the op-ed piece that was submitted to the New York Times that blew up, actually, um, on the whole Aziz Ansari case, the writer Barry wrote... Um, quoted Grace, the victim of the case, and said, you ignored clear nonverbal cues. You kept going with advances. You had to have noticed I was uncomfortable. Read her text message again, Barry says. Put in other words, I am angry that you weren't able to read my mind. And basically she's talking about how um, this reporter had said that she, since she had used verbal and nonverbal cues to indicate how uncomfortable and distressed she was, and because of the fact that um, I'm sorry didn't notice Grace's uh, whole resistance and everything, it's like not acceptable in the sense that like she sides with I'm sorry on this one, and it's like because I guess consent to her seems to be like not. I don't even know. It's just not... It's so stupid. Like, clearly the general public doesn't have an idea what consent is if she thinks that's acceptable because of the fact that she uh, comes to Ansari's defense by saying, like, oh, he's not a mind reader. Yeah, so what what exactly... Just give us the rundown of this case so that we can understand what's going on here. Um, basically, I believe... Like, hold on. I believe she was a photographer. But this, like... A nobody was at a party in Hollywood and like at an Emmy's after party, and so she approached him and they like bonded over the the admiration of like a camera, and then they went on a date in Manhattan, and basically they like drank wine and like had food, and then he brought her over to her his apartment afterward. And I guess, like, he was making advances towards her and, like, started undressing himself. And she really wasn't, really, like, into it at all. Like, I guess she was very uncomfortable. It doesn't sound like there was consent. Yeah, no. Um, the woman said she was deeply uncomfortable throughout. And she attempted to voice her hesitation, but Aziz ignored her. So. Wow. That seems like a pretty clear case to me. Yeah, but apparently, I guess not everybody knows what consent is. So. I think the biggest problem today is definitely the fact that people don't understand, like, the, de- like, definitions of consent and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that people don't realize it's unwanted sexual contact, like, is, like, the part where I feel like people need to work on the bit the most because it's, like, okay, it's unwanted, point blank, it is unwanted, like, that's it. Like, no. <sighs> but, yeah, um... So, one of my friends was actually a victim of the basketball, like, whole case with the sexual assault on campus earlier this year, and the investigator told my friend that she and the other victims simply regretted the decision they made when they engaged in sexual activity with these basketball players, and even the lawyer representing the players, which was, uh, I believe, Scott Rosenblum, stated in the New York Times that he believes that the young woman had buyer's remorse. Wait, what? Yeah. Is this, wait. It sounds to me like people are putting these words into the survivor's mouths. Is that the case? Yeah, clearly, because that's not what happened at all. Um, these women were clear, like very, very, very intoxicated, first of all. So there was mm-hmm. no consent to begin with because consent means that you have to be a sober, like, yes. So that's where, like, the line is, like, messed up here because all these people, including the investigator and then the lawyer, the high-profile lawyer on this case were basically blaming the women saying like oh no they definitely did want it it's just the fact that like oh now they regret it so wait are people even paying attention to what consent is or what it's not no which is why it's so important to talk about yeah um even with that like the investigators asked my friend to prove she was undergoing PTSD to further validate the case that she was sexually assaulted. So, like, not only did she have reoccurring nightmares as a result of the P- PTSD that the assault provided her with, but my friend literally also withdrew from SLU wow. and fell into a deep hole of alcoholism and depression as well. 
So it's interesting to me that women are supposed to demonstrate their turmoil in order to prove their case. It seems as though, like, the system prefers women to self-destruct rather than feel empowered to make some sort of change in the way the system deals with sexual assault. Wow. That's, that's just tragic. Yeah. I feel like society has a skewed way of thinking for how you're supposed to feel afterward when you're a victim. Like, you hear a lot of victims say they don't remember exact details of what had happened to them because their body shut down or they purposely try to repress the memories of the incident because it was traumatic. Mm -hmm. But apparently this isn't acceptable. What I don't understand is how men and officials who have never had sexual assault occur to them can say this. Like, you have no idea what it feels like to be coerced into engaging in, in sexual activity with someone bigger, stronger, and more powerful than you. Yeah, it, it goes back to what Sassi was saying about how this is all wrapped up in a system of, of inequality. What do, you, what do you think about that, Sassi? Women may fear of social implication. Mm. Uh, Sometimes they may fear that nothing will be done about sexual harassment. Yeah, that seems like a pretty well-founded fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand why. Like, that's why a lot of people say women don't like to go report it to begin with because every single time they do, it's just kind of like, oh, nobody believes you. People doubt you. People are going to make fun of you. People mm-hmm. are going to side with the other person. It's just a whole traumatic experience. So, of course, women don't even want to bother coming to, out with, like, their stories to begin with, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Sexual harassment is another one that people can't seem to grasp why women feel shitty about it. In a workplace, a boss demanding sexual favors from their female employee and even, like, threatening to fire those who refuse leads women to believe that we are nothing more than our bodies or looks. Like, why are we supposed to feel flattered that, like, some random creepy man is hanging out of a car window shouting at us or catcalling us? Like, why are we supposed to feel flattered that some creepy man approaches us telling us, damn, you're beautiful, can I get your number? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how are we supposed to know there are no ill intentions behind this gesture? Certain men clearly don't know how to handle rejection from women well, as there have been multiple cases of murders happening due to this. I'm sure you've heard, like, of a few, like, where, like, oh, like, a girl, like, rejects, like, some guy, and then he, like, stalks her and, like, kills her, and, like, all of, like... All of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's so messed up. I mean, just just like threatening your daily being in the world and existing. I mean, it goes back to what Sasu was saying about the psychosomatic, you know, effects of that. I mean, if you can't live in your own skin and not fear, you know, somebody approaching you like this. Yes. Right. I feel like a lot of guys just like to assert their dominance and masculinity and then like don't think there's anything wrong with doing so. Speaking of rejection, there's a massive sexual assault problem that exists within university fraternities. Oh boy. (laughs) Seemingly men who can't get women to consent to them sober feel the need to spike their drinks at frat parties. So, like, a few, like, examples of this are, in 2014, like, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee police investigated a fraternity after several women were found labeled with red and black X's on their hands after they had to be hospitalized with memory lapses from intoxication at a fraternity party. In 2013, three sexual assaults were reported at one Texas fraternity just within a month. Wow. Georgia Tech, a frat brother, sent around an email guide calling luring your rape bait. Like... Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Exactly. Like, if you think that people are making this kind of stuff up, I don't know what to say because it's honestly, like, everywhere. And it's so... It's, like, all over the news, but I guess people just seem to, like, be in some sort of bubble and, like, I don't know, either ignore it or there's something else going on because there's... It's everywhere. So, okay, even at Wesleyan, had like there was a frat that was nicknamed the Rape Factory. And then in 2010, fraternity brothers at Yale University marched through campus yelling, no means yes, yes means anal. Like, honestly, it's a joke right. at this point. No, I, and I remember even from my undergrad of a fraternity that ended up getting kicked off campus, but it translated its Greek letters into sexual assault expected. That's just crazy. That's disgusting to me, honestly, right now. I'm, like, listening to this in shock. Yep, people, it's funny because people like to say, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with our society. Like, I feel like that was a big chunk of the whole purpose for the Me Too movement was because they wanted to spread, women wanted to spread awareness 
for sexual assault, but it's like, why are we spreading awareness? It's happening, like, every day, everywhere. It's all over the news. People just seem to ignore it. But uh, back to the whole Greek thing, last year I took part in SLU's program directed at Greek students for preventing sexual assault. But the thing was, fraternity men were in separate rooms from sorority women, and women felt there was a lot for men to be called out on, especially with the idea of formals, especially Mm. because, like, with that, um, women often feel like they're pretty much, like, forced to, like, get with their dates because of the fact that they're out of town and they have to have a bed together and, like, this hotel and everything. It just reinforces this whole idea of, like, oh, if you don't sleep with your date, like, there's a problem. Wait, you have to have a bed together? Yeah, it's it's crazy. It makes people so uncomfortable. Like, no yeah, one... Yeah, that's my stuff. Right. So, like, obviously, like, women were, like, raising concerns about the fact that this is ridiculous and the standards and all that don't make any sense whatsoever. But, no, it's still a thing today, and it's just stupid because, um, like, men didn't even get to hear the ideas out because when the two groups were brought together to discuss these issues... Women didn't speak up, and none of these issues that we had previously discussed, like women had passionately discussed in that room, were brought to light. Not to mention, I thought it was important to note that this program was not mandatory for all members, which, like, I think is important for all universities to have mandatory training in person that is specifically geared towards sexual assault and harassment in Greek life because it's, like, such a big issue um, I don't see why only a few members can go and then from each chapter and call it a day. I, I mean... Again, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Not it, mandatory. Well, So, like, how do you expect the problem to cease if, like, not everybody is educated on the fact that this isn't acceptable? Wow. Um, I thought a better way to handle something like this would be perhaps if women were all allowed to voice their concerns together and the facilitator brought these issues to fraternities when the two groups were together as a whole, maybe, because, like, since women didn't seem to have the, um, I I don't want to say ability, but more so, like, I guess women couldn't seem to face men and tell them themselves, probably due to, like, like you guys said before, like, fear of, like, embarrassment and ridicule and all that. Um, I feel like the facilitator should be able to bring these issues to men and try and get their opinions, like, outspoken and everything for everyone to hear on these issues next time they try and facilitate one of these programs. What do you guys think? I think uh, maybe social media is a good benefit to uh, people to gain knowledge about this situation, sexual harassment, about how women feel how they deal with that problem, the effective, the effect of that physical and psychological. Yeah, and I mean, social media isn't like a gendered space where, oh, only women are talking about this, only men are talking about that. It seems like what Lily's saying of like a way that we need to have these conversations together. You can't just be talking separate. Yes. Yeah, that's a good, I think it's a good idea. I'd also like to apply that concept to schools and dress code, actually. Oh, I hear you have feelings on this. <laughs> yeah, I do, because I went to a private school where girls were not allowed to wear yoga pants at all because of the fact that it would be like considered distracting to guys. Mm. What I'd like to know is why don't we understand that stricter dress code for girls in school further like furthers rape culture like do school officials not realize by telling young girls who are wearing yoga pants to school for their comfort that they can't because boys will stare and get distracted so like you're basically telling girls like their education does not matter at all nor is their comfort and boys will be boys and sexualize girls so girls need to dress different solely for the sake of men like how does like how does that make any sense it doesn't i mean it to expect that is just saying something about how fine we are as a society with the fact that these attitudes are just present in in boys and men. Yeah, like, how is this any different from saying, like, a girl deserved to be sexually assaulted because of what she's wearing? Yeah. 
It's not acceptable to halt a female student's education, pull her out of class because she's wearing yoga pants, and justify this by saying boys wouldn't have as good as an as good of an education because they'll get distracted. This right here also furthers the idea that women's education does not matter as much, and that places like men in a position of power because it's basically reiterating, oh, their education's more important. Whatever they're going to do in life is more important than anything that women will do. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we slapping young girls on the hand for? wearing comfortable pants during a long school day but we're not slapping the young boys who are staring at her butt and talking about the young girls sexually like what like what does that make sense like what sense does that make right the key to stopping sexual harassment and sexual assault is most certainly not asking girls to dress less provocatively but it is not promoting rape culture and teaching young men and women what behavior is appropriate and what's not and enforcing repercussions on those who choose not to behave themselves. Exactly. I mean, this just seems like the education that we're talking about, the messages that we need to challenge that um, boys and men are getting about how to treat women or things like that. I mean, it's like getting to the root of the problem. It seems like to, to talk about you know, oh, the way that women are dressing, you're not actually addressing what is the true problem at hand. Thank you. Um, Speaking of enforcing repercussions, let's talk about Brock Turner, who was caught sexually penetrating an intoxicated and unconscious 22-year-old. These convictions, by the way, carried a potential sentence of 14 years in prison, but on June 2nd, the judge, Aaron Persky, sentenced Turner to literally six months confinement in the Santa Clara County Jail, followed by three years of probation. Um, does that sound fair at all to you or like a good repercussion? No. <laughs> no. Exactly. Like, what is he supposed to learn from that? Like, nothing. You're not going to learn anything from that. I, I don't even understand why you would give somebody who is supposed to have 14 years in prison, what, like six months? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, and the letter, like, that his dad wrote to the court and everything, like, on behalf of his son, uh, I thought this was super interesting. Um, he stated, his life will never be the one that he dr- he dreamed about and worked so hard to achieve. That is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20-plus years of life. Wow. Uh, yeah. There's a lot to say about this, including <laughs> the fact that even... Brock's family believed his education was more valuable than the trauma and tragedy he caused this victim. Like, by minimizing sexual assault to just 20 minutes of action, this also further promotes rape culture. His sentence was an absolute joke, and it is believed that, like, the reasoning behind it is his education as a standard Stanford student and status as an athlete were, like, more important. So, no. For other men and women to see that this boy who committed a high-profile case of sexual assault and (laughs) not get the sentencing he deserves furthers the idea that society will not learn to stop this behavior. Like, how can we fix this? Yeah. Tell us. What do you think? (laughs) Well, perhaps by not being as lenient on punishment for people who have committed sexual assault would be important. Um, Not only this, but teaching children from a young age that men and women's bodies are similar not to be sexualized. Um, I think a big part of this also has to do with the fact that women are portrayed, how women are portrayed in uh, video games and music videos as vixens and advertisements in general. Like, what about you guys? I think I agree with you, Rekha. The holistic strategy to reduce sexual harassment in our society should be uh, begin with the family level. Uh, social level and institutional level. Yeah, I mean, the media plays a huge role in this, like you're saying, with with advertisements, with any number of ways that women are just sexualized you know, everywhere. <laughs> right, like, I don't understand how men are supposed to learn that, like, oh, men and women are actually, like, very similar and not to sexualized women at all, but... Mm-hmm. Brad Turner was an example of status allowing him to walk away with minimal, like, repercussions. Slew also made a pathetic attempt to cover the basketball players' backs over the victims. I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. The players were still able to remain at the university and travel with their team until the final verdict in January. The original assault and reports happened in September. Let me point that out. That's right. Unfortunately, this is a common trend for many college athletes accused of sexual assault. 
Status and power have a lot to do with who gets away with that. James Franco is another example of this. He founded a film school and was a mentor and teacher to many students. And, like, according to, like, the L.A. Times, um, a girl by the name of Tither Kaplan was one of five women who, in interviews with the Times, accused Franco of behavior that they found to be sexually exploitative or inappropriate. Four were his students, and another one said she, he was her mentor. In some cases, they said they said they believed Franco could offer them career advancement and acquiesce to his wishes even when they were uncomfortable. One said, I feel there was an abuse of power and there was a culture of exploiting non-celebrity women and a culture of women being replaceable. James was also never punished through the process. I'd just like to point that out. Wow. That's big time protection of... Of men right there. Yeah, it's not acceptable at all. It's like, okay, why? Like, why do we keep making these exceptions for people who are, like, big in society? Whether it be, like, a college athlete or, like, a celebrity. That's exactly what I want to pick up in the next <laughs> section. Oh. <laughs> the shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, so James was, like, a more private example of her being a public figure, but the whole, like, hashtag MeToo movement was really interesting because there was a lot of doubt when these famous people's stories came out about public figures sexually assaulting them, like, one by one. Um, I think after numerous actresses and actors coming out about the same people, the doubt was finally removed, but that's, like, really sad because one person's story shouldn't just be discounted because they're the only one that came forward. That's right. Um, I think prevalence was a huge part of this as well in the whole movement because I remember when I scrolled through my Facebook feed and saw all these young women that I had personally known make statuses about it and the kind of like being like, I guess, sexually assaulted or harassed, um, really put into perspective how prevalent this issue really is, which shocked me to like see that so many people had no idea this existed hence the movement but i guess after so many responses to all these high profile cases now i understand why this was in place um what bothered me about the movement was the argument people made saying like what if that was like your mom your sister your daughter like why can't we just think of women as human so like obviously if you're listening to this and you have undergone any of the topics we discussed, whether it be sexual harassment, sexual assault, dealing with a friend who has. You can also call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, which is available 24 hours a day, or you could definitely reach out to uh, resource centers such as the National Sexual Violence Resource Center and other local ones. Like I know in St. Louis, we have safe connections. Don't be afraid to get help. So our last uh, section for this episode that we want to talk about is society's continuous protection of men. I think it really shows up in Lily's piece of how, um, you know, often in these cases, whether it's Brock Turner, whether it's any number of the SLU basketball team or anything like that, there's this sense of protection from society that that men are afforded, I think, basically because we can't stand to think about what if we actually critiqued the men? What if we actually sought justice in these situations? It's like the whole system that I think you brought in at the beginning, Sassy, of um, system of inequality and system of men having power over women sets it up that men are almost untouchable. Like they just don't, they can't be criticized or they can't be um, at fault in these circumstances. Do you guys notice stuff like that? Oh, definitely, especially with everything in the whole, like, James Franco case that I talked about, a lot of the athletes that I've heard of, um, it just seems like everyone likes to make exceptions for these people because of the fact that, oh, they're, like, some sort of, like, big shot, whether it's, like, oh, I'm famous or, like, I'm just a really good athlete and I could definitely bring home a trophy this year for our team. Like, no, that's not acceptable. Like, you're, you still have to be held accountable for your actions. Yeah. Usually men from the high position of career choose, uh, usually be protected from the society when they did the sexual harassment, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting what you are saying, Lily, about the Me Too movement and just how it took, you know, 
so many people jumping on board with that movement to, and it's still continuing, um, to actually have people listen to the survivors of these uh, sexual assault or sexual harassment. But I was shocked to find that, of course, there is even a lashback against the Me Too movement. And, you know, there is a um, French actress, Catherine Deneuve, I think that I don't speak French, but I think that's how you say it, who came out with as a leader of a lashback against Me Too, um, saying that, you know, this movement represses sexual freedom and expression and somehow, you know, God forbid that, you know, we don't let men express themselves sexually, even if it's at the expense of women. So I I just couldn't believe that, um, you know, there's these accusations of the fact that the Me Too movement has just gone too far in, you know, now men can't do anything sexually. This is just crazy. In my opinion, it's literally just get consent and it's fine. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't understand why it's so hard to just simply obtain consent. Like, if a man were to ask a woman whether or not she wanted to do something and just waited for that yes, then yeah, of course. Like, by all means, like, no, we're not repressing men's sexual freedom. I don't understand why someone would say something like that because it's just like... You have sexual freedom. You just need to get consent. Yeah. And I just don't know how that can be the takeaway from this conversation. Whereas, you know, we're talking about like, well, what about the effect on women? What about the effect on the survivor of that situation? It's like, we just want to talk about, oh, you're going too far and you've treaded on the the feet of the men instead of actually we're doing something here to work against these systems of sexual assault. Yeah, and I I also thought it was really interesting what you were saying about um, SLU's protection of the basketball players. You know, the situation that they, um, A, could just continue to play. I mean, I remember going to games and seeing uh, Jordan Goodman playing, and then to find out when that news story broke later in the year that oh, he was actually one of the people, one of the perpetrators of of this crime. It's like, what does that have to say about uh, our willingness to protect the men, to say, you know, we're just going to prolong this case so that you can continue playing. And oh, by the way, you know, he was a starting player. He put up a triple-double, the first in school history, I think. So he has what you're saying of that, you know, status of a really good player, and we can't bear to face the fact that actually this is somebody who's perpetrated a crime of sexual assault and, you know, we need to actually address that situation. Um, what does that say about us as a Jesuit institution is what I want to know. We're supposed to be high on ideals and morals and values, yet it seems to me that at, like after this whole case that we valued sports and titles over literally values and morals regarding like ethics and like sexual assault and kind of just like the feelings of victims like those young women who like were the victims of this case Mm -hmm. i mean i think one of the just the main things is the lack of information that was out there i mean there was a a really excellent article written by jose de jesus ortiz um in the st louis post dispatch that just talked about how there just hasn't been any information about this case. And that that makes it really sad, and it makes it um, be the case that you can't even really talk about what SLU is doing or how they're addressing this or what's going on with the case because just nobody's saying anything. I mean, there's it's all under wraps, which just makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, it wasn't until the final verdict was released that... It was even put out there that these men were recording the women at the time of the assault even, yet Rosenblum, the lawyer, um, decided to say, like, oh, I don't know how they wouldn't know they were being recorded. Like, I feel like there's key information missing that the public deserves to know. Right, right. Yes, I think so. We should... uh let the public know about the situation and the power of the public can help the situation get better. 
Yeah. I mean, we, the sad thing is we just keep seeing this happen over and over again where, you know, somebody famous, like you're saying, Lily, earlier, somebody that has some kind of skill, whether it's an actor, whether it's an athlete, we can't just bear with the fact that there is a problem here. Like we can't, we can't, um, give up that ability, whether it is to play basketball, whether it's to be an actor, um, we can't sacrifice that for uh, the good of the survivors, for um, the fact that these men have perpetrated crimes that they should be held accountable for. Yeah, I think the main part is the fact that we're ignoring ethics here, and I just don't understand how that's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just any number of cases. I think of the um, NFL cases of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, you know, something like the the Ray Rice case, for example. Um, this is a pretty well-known case that, you know, Ray Rice uh, found to, was found to be a domestic abuser and um, was given, I think, two a two-game suspension, which is like nothing. It's way less than people receive for example you know having marijuana or something like that i mean two games is and there have been these reports that have been put out so minimal Um, but then it took the video of the elevator surveillance camera being released by the way by tmz uh, which is also kind of questionable but it took that video being released for people to actually see the evidence for what happened, which was that Ray Rice knocked his then fiance, uh, Janae Palmer, out cold in an elevator. Mm-hmm. And then people were just like up in arms and oh now Ray Rice is actually suspended from the NFL and you know he's not playing at all. Why did it take why did it go from that of you know he's a domestic abuser, two game suspension to oh, this is what really happened, now he's can't play football anymore. Yeah, I think it goes back to the whole um, idea where it's like if we're not help, like holding these people accountable and giving them severe repercussions, it's just going to keep happening because people like will think and know that they can get away with doing it over and over again. Yeah, which is kind of like what like the whole Brock Turner case was um, around because he was only given six months. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to 14 years, I'm pretty sure people like like you said, people who get caught with like paraphernalia and like weed are sentenced longer than this kid was for something so serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me how so often we see people um, questioning their sentence or like challenging their their sentence. What's the word for that? Uh, like appealing. appealing. There we go. <laughs> Anyways, people appealing their sentences or their, you know, suspensions or their whatever. To me, is it just me or does that just look great? Like really messed up that, okay, you know, I abused somebody and um, now I'm going to ask you to reduce the sentence because, you know, oh, it wasn't that bad or you should have pity on me. I don't know. It just seems messed up to me. I agree. I I think that's really messed up. Um, It just shows that even after everything, they still don't believe they're doing anything wrong, Mm. which is the whole idea that we as a society and system all need to change because the problem will never stop so long as people don't understand or see like what they're doing wrong when they do stuff to others like that. So, yeah, and if you if you need even more evidence, the last case I want to mention is the Larry Nasser case at Michigan State. I mean, this this just smacks of protection for men, and it's an institutional protection. You know, I think the first time that somebody brought to the university's attention um, some kind of accusation against Dr. Nasser was in like 1997, and here we are, 20 years later now finding out about the hundreds of people that he um, took advantage of, assaulted um, throughout his time at Michigan State. It's not, you realize that it's not just the individual, but it's the whole system that's protecting him and enabling him to um, really have his way, um, which is, you know, just so problematic. 
And it was so hard for all these women to come forward because of that. The institution was literally backing him for 20 years and, like, telling these girls, like, oh, like, there's nothing going on. Like, you're, whatever you're saying is clearly wrong. And it's just, why would people ever come forward if that's the type of stuff that's going on behind the scenes? Mm-hmm. Um, it just further reinforces the idea that women should not come forward ever because they'll never win, which yeah. is stupid. Well, it seems like we're in a place here now that we can kind of talk about what are some strategies of prevention and how can we how can we work against um, the ways that society protects men um, the ways that systems of um, you know sexual assault harassment uh, are upheld um, Sasi, what do you what do you think about just prevention and strategies almost like on this level of culture as we've been talking about Maybe we should uh, advance more women to obvious position of supervisor. Wow, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. If men are the ones in power, then they'll be the ones protecting men. Although, I mean, you think of this case of the French actress, Catherine Deneuve. I mean, it's, I think women can, can kind of even just get sucked into this system and perpetuate these cycles. I do think, though, it's important to note that the judge that had the ultimate decision for Larry's case was a woman, and she definitely made him receive the maximum amount of sentencing possible. Mm -hmm. So um, I think Sassy makes a good point. Like, I honestly didn't even think of that when I think of ways to handle this, that maybe we should put women in positions of judges that actually deal with cases such as this because of the fact that men for some reason don't seem to understand the ideology behind why it's wrong Mm -hmm. um what they're doing and that it shouldn't be excused um i think it's hard to say but i really do believe that if it starts like one case at a time so if we like were to consistently keep the same punishment for each case then yeah of course it'll like stop eventually because of the fact that like it's a consistent basis of punishing men and holding them accountable and giving them the repercussions they need in order for society to finally understand that we are starting to care and this behavior is not excusable anymore yeah i mean it's it's like a change in like rhetoric or the way we talk about these cases i mean is it okay to say this I mean, it's okay to blame the men. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it seems like we have a resistance to this. You know, can we just say, like, there's actually a problem here and somebody is responsible. Somebody needs to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. And I think in order to prevent further um, cases of this to be happening is there needs to be more of a widespread understanding of what exactly sexual assault sexual harassment and consent all are in order for people to stop making the excuse that oh i had no idea oh they didn't have any idea of course they did everyone knows at this point but i guess they don't so i feel like if we just made these definitions more clear and put them out there more then people wouldn't have anything else to be able to use to justify this behavior also, it is important to create an integrative approach involving community network, legal system, policy, religious component, and other community-based working group to implement and achievement equal gender empowerment. Definitely. I mean, I think a lot of it does come down to the, the courts and, you know, I, this, uh, this notion of innocent until proven guilty is kind of problematic. I mean, you hear of the case that, you know, you won't listen to one witness there has to be just like multiple witnesses or survivors of sexual assault in order to actually do something about a specific case. I mean, maybe that's a, that's another area, like you're saying, that we need to rethink in the legal system how we go about approaching these cases. Yes. And even just, like you're saying, teaching people, uh, making this just common knowledge about um, these definitions and, and what is consent, what is sexual assault, and all of that. So, I mean, to me, I think really it comes down to to finding a sense of justice in these cases. And I think a lot of that has to do with having accountability for actions, uh, for people actually owning up to their actions. I mean, it, you know, when you find that people are appealing their sentences or that they're, you know, doing everything they can to escape 
facing the facts, facing the reality of a situation. I mean, to me, that's uh, there's not going to be any progress there. Um, so, um, all that to say that you know, hopefully we've shed a little light on the the wider context of uh, the Me Too movement, the various dimensions that go into that, um, and hopefully given some light on the situation and maybe maybe brought uh, some ideas and strategies for prevention and moving forward. So. Uh, do you all have any any last words? Don't do it. <laughs> Get consent. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being with us. Until next time. Peace out. Peace out.